Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Oh, hello, hello. Just another day in Donald Trump's America. Don't even know where to start. <laughs> I really don't. So uh, right now you've got the, um, the now Democratic-controlled uh, House going after our acting attorney general, uh, the incomparably uh, not ready for prime time, Matt Whitaker. Uh, also, last night you have this breaking story um, prompted by a blog post put out by none other than the richest man in the world. Uh, whose name I still don't know how is is it Bezos or Beza? I think it's Bezos. I'm going to call him Bezos till somebody tells me not to. Uh, and uh, in that blog post, he, of course, accused uh, American media, which is uh, National Enquirer, uh, headed by uh, Trump's friend, David Pecker, of uh, attempting to extort uh, him, uh, threatening to print nude photos, salacious photos that they have. More on that later. I mean, okay, no, more on that now. What is with, I mean, I understand young idiot people having pictures of their I c and I really don't. I don't. I don't understand it. What? Why would Jeff Bezos at his age and position, uh, the wealthiest man in the world, because he can do anything he wants, but why would he take dick pics at first, when I heard about this, I assumed that maybe the Inquirer and some paparazzi they'd hired or something had surreptitiously taken pictures of, of Bezos. But no, these pictures could only have come from uh, the man himself. What is, what is with people? I have managed to get entirely through uh, a long life already at this point. Um, and have never even felt the slightest inkling of an urge to take a picture of um, a private part of my body. Does that make me unusual in this day and age? I guess it does. I don't know. And it never in my long life would occur to me uh, to be aroused or happy to get a picture of my uh, lover's penis. I, <laughs> I, I don't get it. I so don't get it. But anyway, this, uh, I love it. I love, uh, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on for me with this because I, as you know, I cannot stomach Jeff Bezos. I 
I have a grievance against him for many, many, many things, including his incredible success as a entrepreneur and capitalist. Uh, but I just think that his creation, Amazon, has been more destructive than constructive, has uh, only ratcheted up the superficiality of um, our culture, the acquisitiveness of our culture, the, uh, the even increased, uh, the idea that increased, absolutely uh, created this sense that we now all have that speed and, and the lowest price is the most important thing um, in our search for material goods. I, I don't know. The destruction of uh, brick and mortar stores, the destruction of ma and pa stores. I mean, that began with like Walmart and that kind of stuff. I just, I have nothing to, um, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then on top of it, he is uh, known to be uh, I extremely uncharitable uh, for a man holding uh, <laughs> uh, enough money to um, be doled out to probably millions upon millions upon millions of people. Um, and he would still be extraordinarily rich if he gave probably 90% of his money away. He gives next to nothing away. I can't stand him. But the cognitive dissonance is because in this fight, I'm on his side. And in this fight, I am thrilled that he is the richest man in the world and quite capable of taking on the National Enquirer, which is just doing business as it always does. When you realize that his refusal to kowtow to their threats um, is probably something they are totally not used to. You have to re realize then how many people, and probably a lot of people whose names you know because they're celebrities, how many have had to capitulate in one way or the other to these kinds of threats? I mean, this is, the, this is their business model. And it's worked. This is the business model, and they used it uh, to help Donald Trump get elected, as we know. Paying off Karen McDougal. Paying off Stormy Daniels. This is their M.O. Have you read the actual what what he put out, or have you just read the uh, reporting about it? Because um, if you read the whole thing that Bezos wrote, it, it, it really is, <laughs> it's fascinating. I can, if you don't mind, we'll share a little bit of it with you. It starts thusly, no thank you, Mr. Pecker. And then he goes on to say, something unusual happened to me yesterday. 
Actually, for me, it wasn't just unusual. It was a first. I was made an offer I couldn't refuse. Or at least that's what the top people at the National Enquirer thought. I'm glad they thought that because it emboldened them to put it all in writing rather than capitulate to extortion and blackmail. I have decided to publish exactly what they sent me, despite the personal cost and embarrassment they threaten. So the reason we know that Jeff Bezos took pictures of his penis is because he let us know. He said, okay, I'm going to beat you to the punch here. I'm going to print what you have threatened me with. And in what they threatened him with was lurid uh, descriptions of the photos <coughs> that they had. Uh, <coughs> he goes on to clearly suggest that Pecker and the National Choir are not only uh, working in cahoots with the president, but also clearly with the Saudis. And that sometimes all these things, the president, the inquirer, and the Saudis come together. Now, a lot of, I, I think, talking heads are now saying, what set Pecker, what, what made them so freaked that they were willing to take on Bezos? And it, 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 it has to do perhaps with the Saudi connection even more than the Trump connection, but who the hell knows? But Bezos in his blog says that after Trump became president, he rewarded Pecker's loyalty with a White House dinner to which Pecker brought a guest with important ties to the royal family in Saudi Arabia. At the time, Pecker was pursuing business there while also hunting for financing for acquisitions. So this is how loathsome this and slimy this White House is. This is a, the President of the United States dining with the guy who puts out that crap, the National Enquirer, who brings along some connected Saudi Arabian because both Trump and Pecker are looking for deals all the time. Uh, and in the post then, uh, Bezos tells us that the National Enquirer and American Media, their parent company, uh, use that media outlet for political purposes. Um, I let me return to the Bezos's words. I didn't know much about most of that a few weeks ago when intimate text messages from me were published in the Enquirer. 
I engaged investigators to learn how those texts were obtained and to determine the motives for the many unusual actions taken by the inquirer. As it turns out, there are now several independent investigations looking into this matter. This is what the inquirer wants this stopped. God knows what, what a festering cesspool we might soon be able to see. Bezos again. To lead my investigation, I retained Gavin DeBecker. I have known Mr. DeBecker for 20 years. His ex expertise is excellent. He's one of the smartest, most capable leaders I know. And here's how the richest man in the world talks. I asked him to prioritize protecting my time, since I have other things I prefer to work on, and to proceed with whatever budget he needed to pursue the facts. And then he says something so weird, and I haven't heard this term before, and I immediately didn't like it. Um, Bezos says, here is a piece of context. My ownership of the Washington Post is a complexifier. You ever heard that word? It's a complexifier for me. It is unavoidable that certain powerful people who experience Washington Post news coverage will wrongly conclude I am their enemy. So he's saying now that I not only own Amazon, but I also own this uh, influential newspaper, the Washington Post, if there is journalism in that paper that some political figure doesn't like, they now assume that Bezos is out to get them. And that complicates his life all. Oh, it complexifies it. <laughs> it is a complexifier, his wanting to get into media ownership. And then he says, even though the Post is, an, is a complexifier, <laughs> Uh, I, when you're the richest man, you get to invent words. I mean, it's just it's okay. And we get it. I understood in context. Even though the post is a complexifier for me, I do not at all regret my investment. <clears throat> the post is a critical institution with a critical mission. My stewardship of the post and my support of its mission, which will remain unswerving, is something I will be most proud of when I'm 90 and reviewing my life, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, regardless of any complexities it creates for me. So he has decided that, yes, on his deathbed, he will be able to feel good about ownership of the Washington Post, which also suggests he won't feel as good about the impact of his uh, market success. Okay, so then, I mean, he, write, he writes very well. He writes this in a very conversational way. And then he says, back to the story. Several days ago, an AMI, American Media Leader, advised us that Mr. Pecker is apoplectic about our investigation. For reasons still to be better understood, the Saudi angle seems to have hit a particularly sensitive nerve. 
Now understand, Bezos not only has Gavin De Becker, who's one of these, you know, private detective types, he also has a stable of some of the best investigative journalists in the world. <laughs> so if you're David Pecker, you might be thinking this morning, uh-oh, I may be picked a fight with the wrong person here. And then Bezos says, so a few days after hearing about Mr. Pecker's apoplexy, we were approached verbally at first with an offer. They said they had more of my text messages and photos that they would publish if we did not stop our investigation. Uh, and um, I'll just back it. Okay, so then he says, okay, so back to that threat to publish intimate photos of me. I guess I didn't react to the generalized threat with enough fear. So they then sent this, and here's where he starts showing us the actual uh, notes that uh, it said, and it says confidential and not for distribution, which is misspelled. <coughs> and this is from Dylan Howard, Chief Content Officer of American Media. And it is to the attorney for Gavin DeBecker. And it says on the subject line, Jeff Bezos and Ms. Lauren Sanchez photos. And here's how the threat is made. And you've got to believe that so many other people have gotten this they probably have this. They just fill in the blanks on this letter because they've done this to many people before. In the interest of expediting the situation and with the Washington Post poised to publish unsubstantiated rumors of the National Enquirer's initial report, I wanted to describe to you the photos obtained during our news gathering. In addition to a below-the-belt selfie, otherwise colloquially, colloquially known as a dick pic. The Enquirer, these are, this is these high price, the Enquirer obtained a fur further nine images. These include, and some of these are like, who cares? Mr. Bezos' face selfie at what appears to be a business meeting. Ms. Sanchez's response, a photograph of her smoking a cigar in what appears to be a simulated oral sex scene. They also say they have a picture of a shirtless Bezos holding his phone in his left hand while wearing his wedding ring. He's wearing either tight black cargo pants or shorts, and his semi-erect manhood is penetrating the zipper of said garment. They also have a full-length body selfie of Bezos wearing just a pair of tight black boxer briefs or trunks with his phone in his left hand while wearing his wedding ring. They have a selfie of Bezos fully clothed, a full-length scantily clad body short with short trunks, a naked selfie in a bathroom while wearing his wedding ring. <laughs> Bezos is wearing nothing but a white towel and the top of his pubic region can be seen. 
And then they have Ms. Sanchez wearing a plunging red neckline dress, revealing her cleavage. Oh, my God! Oh, and a glimpse of her nether region. What the hell does that mean? <coughs> and finally... Ms. Sanchez wearing a two-piece red bikini with gold detail dress revealing her cleavage. And this attorney for the um, National Enquirer uh, ends his little missive with, it would give no editor pleasure to send this email. I hope common sense can prevail. And quickly. Dylan. Okay, so Bezos... After sharing that with us, he preempted them. He said, here's what they got. Okay. Well, says Bezos, that got my attention, but not in the way they likely hoped. Any personal embarrassment AMI could cause me takes a back seat because there's a much more important matter involved here. If in my position, the richest man in the world, I cannot stand up to this kind of extortion. How many people could? In fact, on that point, numerous people have contacted our investigation team about their similar experiences with AMI and how they needed to capitulate because their livelihoods were at stake. In the AMI letters I am making public, you will see the precise details of their extortionate proposal. They will publish the personal photos unless Gavin DeBecker and I make the specific false public statement to the press that, they, that we have no knowledge or basis for suggesting that AMI's coverage was politically motivated or influenced by political forces, which bespeaks that the White House is involved here and they are desperately trying to protect the president, I would think. Bezos goes on to say, if we do not agree to affirmatively publicize that specific lie, they say they will publish the photos, and quickly. And there is an associated threat. They will keep the photos on hand and publish them in the future if we ever deviate from that lie. Bezos goes on, be assured no real journalists ever propose anything like what is happening here. I will not report embarrassing information about you if you do X for me. And if you don't do X quickly, I will report the embarrassing information. Nothing I might write here could tell the National Enquirer story as eloquently as their own words. These communications cement AMI's long-earned reputation for weaponizing journalistic privilege hiding behind important protections and ignoring the tenets and purpose of true journalism. Of course, I don't want personal photos published, but I also won't participate in their well-known practice of blackmail, political favors, political attacks, and corruption. I prefer to stand up Roll this log over and see what crawls out. Sincerely, Jeff Bezos. And then he appends to that 
um, the actual, uh, another letter from the inquirer specifically saying, we will, we're going to publish voters unless you did do this. And it's very specific. Uh, a full and complex, here are proposed terms, a full and complex, a mu complete mutual release of all claims in American media and Jeff Bezos uh, may have against each other. A, uh, AM agrees not to publish, distribute, share, or describe uh, uh, these texts and photos if, oh, here it is, a public mutually agreed upon acknowledgement from Bezos released through a mutually agreeable news outlet affirming that they have no knowledge or basis for suggesting that American media's coverage was politically motivated or influenced by political forces and an agreement they will cease referring to such a possibility. And then it says, uh, this agreement is completely confidential. Oh, I don't think so. Or I don't think I'd be reading it here. And ends with, in the case of a breach of this agreement, American media is released from all obligations under the agreement and may publish the unpublished materials. So, um, yeah, there it is. <coughs> and there's more. I mean, it just keeps, it, it's, you know the words in my head right now. And it's, I have my speakers cranked to the max and struggle to hear you. I, guys, I don't know. I have been assured that we are bringing in some consultant who's going to maybe blow the whole system up here and we'll start over. I think that's what we have to do, because clearly, I, I, I'm sorry. Did I say the word that's in my head? Because it's so much of what, um, it just seems like uh, our politics, our culture in every way, the, the word that is stuck in my head is tawdry. Tawdry. It's like I don't even know. I remember quite clearly the first time I heard a television anchor say penis on a newscast. Do you remember when that was? Hmm? No one had ever said penis on a newscast, I assure you. And there was one event that occurred in which all of a sudden penis was the word. And it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> I don't know. Do you remember what it was? And if you don't, I, wanna, I, I really do want to um, direct you. Uh, to the fact that, um, I guess this is in co <laughs> with Valentine's Day, on February 15th, Amazon Prime Video 
will uh, debut a four-part documentary that just happens to be produced by Jordan Peele, who does really good work. See, now here's what drives me crazy, and thank you, Michael. Michael writes, your volume is fine. So, guys, here's our problem. How are we supposed to understand what the hell's happening when we get, on one hand, I can't hear you, and on the other hand, it's fine? That, of course, makes us think that the problem's on your side, and yet we acknowledge something's got to be going on here. But it is so frigging confusing. And that's the last thing I'm saying about it. So yeah, you guys are telling me audio is perfect. I, you know, you know what? I, you know what? I'm simply never again going to. Um, no, I can't promise that. <laughs> Respond when you're when you're telling me about audio because no sooner does one of you say one thing than the, somebody else says the other, and what it totally throws my show off. We get off topic. It's making me insane. It's, well, as you know, it made me insane. Was that this week I stormed off? It was? <laughs> Maybe it was. Was that Monday? I don't know. I have no idea. It was Tuesday? Oh, yeah, because Susan was on. Okay, right. It was. It was Tuesday. Okay, so when did penises first come into our um, uh, the newscast? Amy, do you know? Yeah, Amy knows. That's what it was. It was Lorena Bobbitt. You know, she cut off her husband's penis. Well, that was. There was no way to report this astonishing story uh, without saying penis. I guess it just was no way. So that was what it was. But so there's a four-part documentary. I can't wait. Uh, produced by Jordan Peele. And um, this is going to, I think, be really provocative. And uh, the New York Times did a very, very long piece interview with Lorena Bobbitt. And I am blown away reading the piece about how at the time, the coverage was focused solely on the fact that she cut off his penis. I mean, none of us could be like, what? It was like, oh my God. It was, ah. But <coughs> by the way, it was reattached. I don't know how much you remember. <coughs> it was reattached, and he went on to star in porn films, okay? No harm, no foul, apparently. But what we didn't know, and this is how it repurposes it for our time, you know, cut ahead 20, whatever, 25 years, maybe 30 years. She was an abused wife. He raped her constantly. He He's so, it, it, it's unbelievable what she endured. 
And you might not also remember that she was found not guilty by a jury, reason of temporary insanity. Uh huh. She is an extremely compelling woman now. Sort of, you know, like Monica Lewinsky. We first destroy these women's lives, and then, you know, 20, 30 years, 40 years down the road, we uh, reintroduce ourselves to them, and we're blown away that they aren't who they were represented to be, that the story is, of course, more complicated. At her trial, there was a string of witnesses who testified that they had seen bruises on her arms, on her neck. Uh, the police acknowledged she had called 911 repeatedly. Uh, people said that he had bragged about forcing his wife to have sex, in other words, raping her. Uh, and, and by the way, in the years since the trial, he was arrested several times uh, and accused uh, uh, of violence against uh, women. He served jail time, too. <laughs> but all we remember is his damn penis. She not only cut it off, she was holding, she drove with it in her car. This is the part I don't, I got to see the documentary. She was driving, holding it in her hand with her... And she doesn't remember it either much, I guess. She threw it out the window at one point, just along the side of the road. And, and then she did inform the authorities um, where she'd thrown it out the window. And so I guess this documentary starts with uh, the opening scene is of all these police officers with flashlights going around on the side of the road <laughs> looking for this penis, which they found. And you know what they did? They put it in, I guess there was a 7-Eleven across the street or something. They got one of those things that you put hot dogs in, that one of those cardboard things, and they, they stuck it in there and raced it over to the um, to the hospital, and uh, yeah, you know, they reattached that baby. And as I said, uh, John Bobbitt went on to star in porno films, one of which was John Wayne Bobbitt, uncut. Uh, I did not know this. He was a regular on the Howard Stern show. I mean, he got a whole career out of uh, this uh, moment. Meanwhile, he cashed in. She did not. She turned down $1 million from another August publication, Playboy, uh, to pose nude for them. She has since, by the way, founded um, a nonprofit, Lorena's Red Wagon, that helps survivors of domestic violence. She's a very serious uh, activist now. Uh, 
And she says, I'll put myself through the jokes and everything as long as I can shine a light on domestic violence and marital rape. And she agreed to take part to allow this documentary and to be interviewed for it. And he's interviewed in it, too. It's a documentary. Uh, because she said she hoped that this would finally show the bigger picture and finally supersede the incredible um, attention that we all paid at the time only to his penis. So this is a documentary for our time, just wanting to flag it for you. Uh, we've got callers. I'm sorry I kept you there. Hello. Hello, caller. Hey, Lynn. Hey. Hey, Lynn. It's Mike in D.C. Yeah, hi, Mike. If you were going to name this episode, would it be called the penis episode? <laughs> How many times have you said penis or I dick mean, in one show? I mean, this whole show is about, I'm sick of it. Okay, but it is. <laughs> I... So um, if you think guys were scared during the Me Too business, I remember the Lorraine and Bobbitt thing. Men were scared Terrified. that the they abused were going to cut off their debt. That's right. I they remember, were too. There were, can you imagine how many men were, who, who abused their, their girlfriends and their wives, once Lorena had done what she did, did not were not scared out of their minds? And there was no copycat that I'm aware of. Yeah, but I bet there was plenty of them who in a fight said, hey, Lorena Bobbitt, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then there was the name Bobbit. You know, let's give that a little bob. Um, it, and I haven't seen that. I haven't seen the documentary, but I thought I remember that the porn he did, he was unable to get erect. That they attached it, but it didn't function quite right. Normal. But then he had some kind of something put in it or on it. And so one of his porn films was, was called John Wayne Bobbit Franken Penis. So he didn't exactly skate through this incident without any, you know, not, not saying that he should have, but, you know, we're making light of it, but it still was, he got his dick cut off. <laughs> and they say that to this day, man, you, you mentioned Lorena Bobbitt and they sort of grabbed their crotches. I mean, they just like, it's like a immediate terror. And she's such a quiet, kind, sweet sort of soul. She really had no, she said she does not remember. She had walked into the kitchen. They saw, she saw the knife. And then she doesn't remember. And how she ends up in the car still holding it is beyond belief. I can't wait to see this thing. Don't you think it'll be really good? I don't know. I have one of those penises that might it might be too scary. <laughs> hey, uh, the re the reason I started to call initially was because of the sound. Oh. Uh, and not to switch the subject, and we can talk about Bezos after this gets back on topic. But there are days I can barely hear you, and then days today, like, are fine. Huh. So I don't call in and say, I can't hear you today, because I'm saying this to all the listeners. This shit is free. If you can't hear it, oh, well, it's free. <laughs> um, so there are days I can't hear and days I can't. Um, the days I can barely hear, sometimes I put my headset in. Other times I just move closer to the computer. So I, I, it isn't just one of us. It happens 
intermittently different days, different times, different different phone calls. That's what's so weird. So the day you can hear us, someone else can. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that? Yeah, and on Tuesday when you made your little rant, I could barely hear you either. So there's no rhyme or reason, (laughs) even though you were screaming, yeah. And um, it's not it's, whether it's on my phone, if I listen to it on YouTube on my phone, whether it's on my computer, there doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason to it. Okay, I, we agree, and so that's why I think we just got to blow it up and start over. Oh, wait. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, there was this. Somebody sent me this post-gazette story about, remember, there was this woman who, I don't even want to get into this at the moment. Okay, never mind. And you said you wanted to talk and about And Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Yeah, just, you know, I'm no, no big fan of, of him or Amazon either, but good for him. Because this is the same old tactic that Trump is trying. Trump only has so many cards to play, and one of them is suing. Now that he's president and he can't sue, he's getting all of his minions to try and do the tactics that he's done since his first one, $1 million loan from his daddy. Mm-hmm. So he's doing this. He's playing the same cards, only through these intermediaries. And where's the FBI? I thought if someone blackmailed us, I, I, maybe I watched too many movies, but you call the FBI and say, I'm being blackmailed. And they come to your house and they look at the information. Is the FBI not involved at all when someone blackmails you? I have no idea. Or is idea. that just in the movies? I have no idea. We're living in a movie. What is the difference between movies and reality now? I don't even know anymore. I don't know. I don't know. I have seen that legal experts have said that a prosecutor would find this case not really slam dunk for blackmail or extortion for whatever reason, but uh, it it is despicable. It is despicable. So I I, I just don't know. I don't know. Hey, thank you Uh, for your call. You're welcome. Bye. Input. Thank you. Bye. And do we still have a caller? Caller, go ahead, please. Hello. Hey, hi, Lynn Collin. Hi, Hi, Lynn Collin. I'm sorry. I think you said you didn't want to get into this. But remember, you are on WTAE, and we followed that story about uh, Tammy Tammy Feldbaum, who made a makeshift operating room in her trailer. I think that would be a way better story than John Wayne Bobbitt. Okay, and that I was... I don't really know if I want to... Wait, wait, wait. wait. I Remind don't really want to revisit she... the Bobbitt story. Okay, but wait a minute. So that woman, that was in Butler County? Yes! It was in our own neighborhood. Okay, and, and she... she was a cut... transsexual. Yeah. And her husband wanted to become a female, so she made this little operating room in their trailer, and she cut his penis off, and he ended up dying. He died. And then they went to trial, and the whole thing was so insane with the pictures of her in trial and claiming that, okay, he really wanted the operation, and it just went awry. Oh, oh, how could an operation go awry in a trailer when you remove someone's penis? That's a way weirder story to me than a John. We've all heard about John Wayne Bobbitt enough. Yeah. I want to I see a documentary well, about uh, the Fellbaum story. You know what? You're actually, I mean, you're right. That is an extraordinary story. It is. But, yeah, he was a consenting. He, was a cons- he consented to the act as opposed to John Wayne Bobbitt. 
Yeah, and they were on they were on OxyContin way before it was fashionable. That's true. That's true. They were they were trendsetters. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. <laughs> Plus, oh, oh, the details are so great. They had all these dogs. They were like kind of hoarders and stuff, and the blood soaked bandages. <laughs> That's an amazing story. <laughs> Well, okay, okay. I didn't have time and to revisit it. Really, okay, I'll revisit it. I'll we don't really want to revisit no, that either, but I think it would make a much more funny movie. But <laughs> Hey, there is one thing. Um, I don't know if you're – I'm actually even loath to uh, bring this subject up again, but uh, there's one thing that we were talking about the other day, and you and um, uh, the Cannonsburg guy were talking about – uh, the Liam Neeson thing really is kind of a different level kind of thing, because to me, what I've read about it, I've never watched any of his movies. But from what I've read about the interview that he did, he said this is how he channels his character to do that character of this sort of vigilante revenge, uh, Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood uh -huh. garbage kind of movie. Mm -hmm. And he channels that character about thinking like, oh, I just want to go out on the street and kill some random black person. See, now, I think that's kind of more disgusting than trying to imitate Michael Jackson, because how could you... And actually, I've heard they, they're actually going to might pull his movie even from release. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but not that I care. I would never watch any of his movies anyway. But how could you sit through a movie thinking that this guy is getting his inspiration, as your teacher Meisner would say, he's getting his inspiration from this character by thinking, oh, I just want to go out and kill some random black person. It's kind of, I don't know. I don't, well, I don't know if you that know? was the, con you, you know that was the context? I haven't seen the full the full interview. But I, I thought think he, the context. Oh. Well, I, all I know is that he, I mean, he was suggesting that this had really happened, his wanting to kill a random black person um, mm -hmm. to avenge his friend. Um, and... And he told the story because he, he, he himself is just appalled. He said I, that I would have done that. Okay, well, what if an Irish Catholic white guy raped his friend? Would he just go out on the street no, and say, not. I'm no, just no, going to no. kill some random no. white guy? No, what? no, it doesn't work that way. That would be a no, Charles Bronson thing. Yeah, it doesn't work that way, Yeah, as we, as we know. Mm. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Boy, th this stuff is so complicated, and we all come down all over the place on it. But thank you very much for reminding me of uh, okay. what's her name, Miss. Uh, what was her name? The um, Tammy Feldblum, and I'm in a lobby for someone to do a movie on her or a doc. <laughs> <laughs> it documentary really, it is. It's amazing. It is. Okay, thank you. <laughs> all right, love Bye. you, Lynn. See you later. Bye. 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 Hey guys, before I get out of control here, I, I, I want to remind myself to remind you of all the stuff happening at the August Wilson Center. And while I've been telling you about all the stuff that goes on at the August Wilson Cultural Center, I get, oh please, come on now, I have found something fascinating that's coming there that just came into my, um, my inbox uh, yesterday. Uh, to help uh, rebuild the, the uh, Tree of Life Synagogue. 
which is now, you know, that's in, I drive by it two times a day, minimally. I mean, it's now, there's a fence put up around it. You can't, I mean, there's no, there's, there's no sense that anything is happening in, in there or that anyone is, it's not being fixed. It's not, I, I, I don't know. But um, there is a play that is called Wiesenthal, and it is about this Simon Wiesenthal, who uh, before World War II was a, was a stand-up comedian. Uh, and he ended up being nicknamed the Jewish James Bond uh, because after the war he spent his life tracking down Nazis. And uh, Wiesenthal is, is called Wiesenthal Nazi Hunter is picks up on his humor. He was a stand-up comedian and talk about seeking not vengeance, justice. Um, the people who uh, that that film is is on. Um, let's see. I just want to be clear about this. It is not a history lesson. It says the play illuminates the potential of what people can be, their potential for good and for evil. The play warns how easily a Holocaust could happen again. Uh, this play has been selling to uh, playing to sell out crowds since uh, 2014. Uh, it has been nominated for the two most prestigious Off-Broadway awards. Uh, the Drama Desk Award, the Outer, uh, Outer Critic Circle Award. PBS produced a special about it. It is currently touring North America, the play, and internationally. And um, there's talk about turning it into a feature film. However, the people who are who own this after the massacre at Tree of Life, said that they wanted to add Pittsburgh to their tour, and they will give three performances um, at the August Wilson Cultural Center on March 26th, 27th, and 28th. So they want to pack the house because um, much of the proceeds of uh, those performances will go to the Tree of Life Rebuilding Fund. And uh, so there you have it. I mean, August, August Wilson Center being, a, I think, a perfect fit uh, for, for that. So another wonderful opportunity, uh, actually a twofer, uh, for ex incredible theater, at the August Wilson Center, but also to know that part of the ticket price will also help to rebuild uh, Tree of Life. Okay, so that was one thing I definitely wanted to get through to you. God, this is a strange show, isn't it?
<laughs> nowhere. Where do I go now? After we've dispatched with penises, what do I do next? Um, oh, God, you guys are sending me more stuff about uh, Feldbaum, Tammy, the, the uh, would-be uh, surgeon in the trailer park. God almighty. Oh, she was arrested just last year for uh, threatening to shoot a Westmoreland County judge. She, it, it says here she served uh, prison time for the uh, botched castration of her sixth husband. <laughs> what? what happened to the other five? Well, she is not a good poster child for the transgender uh, crowd, I'll tell you that. So, yeah, she threatened to... When was that? She told, uh, claimed to have in her purse guns and an Uzi, also a rocket launcher. Well, how could she have that in her purse? She's charged with terroristic threats. Okay, she was convicted of involuntary manslaughter uh, in the death of her husband, James Feldbaum, in 2001 and was sentenced to uh, five and a half to 11 years in prison. She cut off her husband's testicles in a makeshift surgical lab on, in the couple's filthy, unheated mobile home in Butler County. <sighs> so, yeah, she's a piece of work. So she's still around. Maybe we should have Tammy on. Maybe we shouldn't. On second thought. I don't know. A lot of people died. Let me, and I don't have any of the obits, but uh, Congressman, uh, longest serving congressman in history, Dingle, uh, from what? Detroit area. Who was 92, and I have to tell you, uh, he finally retired and his wife took over the seat and he served in that seat for I don't know how many years decades 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 and he had taken it over from his father so it's been like the dingle seat for almost a century which doesn't seem American to me I don't like that kind of shit right I really don't but he was always a charismatic uh, character to me and um, so well he died at 92, but up until fairly recently, I was enjoying, I followed him on Twitter. He was good on Twitter. Now, there aren't a lot of 90-year-olds who know how to play Twitter. I mean, he does it better than I do. He just has the right tone, the right, you know, just quick little. So that was that. Who else died? Uh, Frank Robinson, first uh, black uh, major league Baseball manager and a great player himself. And then some British actor who I really like, whose name I now has escaped me. They were like, you know how they people say, I've noticed it always happens in threes. Well, I don't know. It happens in threes on days when it happens in threes, and then we all start talking about how it happens in threes. If it doesn't happen in threes, we don't say. Notice how it always happens in threes? And they never say what the time... The, you know, yeah, three, peop three people die every day. There's no doubt about it. Whether or not we know them or not, I guess, is the... I do have 
Uh, I do have another obit that I can share in the little bit of time we have left. This is, again, one of those lost to history obits. Never heard of her before. Mary Ellen Pleasant. I think if you're from San Francisco, you may have heard of her. But those of us who aren't, haven't. Here's a weird thing. When they hung John Brown, the abolitionist, John Brown, when they hung John Brown, December 2nd, 1859, for murder and treason. There was a note in his pocket. And history tells us this was written on the note. The axe is laid at the foot of the tree. When the first blow is struck, there will be more money to help. At the time, people thought it was written by some northern abolitionist rich person who was telling him we'll be we'll have your back we'll be behind you but in 1901 an elderly black woman writing her autobiography wrote this before I pass away I wish to clear the identity of the party who furnished John Brown with most of his money to start the fight at Harper's Ferry and who signed the letter found on him when he was arrested. Um, what? Okay, no, that's not what she said. Wait. The person who did it was this Mary... Uh, I'm this is her story is so confusing you'll have to I, I sorry I'm gonna sneeze oh my god <coughs> excuse me is that a first I always said I never sneezed on live um, during a live but I just did anyway um, this black woman who was living in San Francisco I don't know if she was in San Francisco at the time she sent John Brown thirty thousand dollars and I gotta tell you that is closing in on close to a million dollars in today's money how's this black woman get a million bucks but she had it she was a former slave who became a millionaire She was a dedicated abolitionist. She was credited with being an important conductor on the Underground Railroad. W.E.B. Du Bois uh, compared her to Harriet Tubman. It is said that she, he said she treasured a bitter hatred for slavery and a certain contempt for white people. It's this woman, her history is so bizarre that people can't even, I mean, a lot of people say some of it isn't true. Who the hell knows? She was born sometime around 1814. Who the hell knows? Because she was born on some Georgia plantation. Um, 
at some point she got sent to Massachusetts when she was young to be a servant um, with a family. And uh, it's the obit says she turned that life in this wealthy New England home into a kind of finishing school. She watched, she listened. Um, and she wrote this, I have let books alone. I have, and studied men and women a good deal. I have always noticed that when I have something to say, people listen. She married a few times. At some point, she married a relatively wealthy man. I don't know. She ended up running off to the California Gold Rush in 1848. And because word had spread that even blacks were free to seek their fortune there, just anybody who could. And she went to San Francisco. She worked as a cook. Uh, no one would necessarily know who she was, but she eavesdropped on the wealthy people she served. She used the information, uh, invested little bits of the money that she had inherited from her one of her husbands, and her portfolio grew and grew to the point where she had millions of dollars. She she owned dairies and laundries. She had had a lot of shares in Wells Fargo Bank. She owned restaurants. She owned boarding houses. Um, in the 1890 census, she's in there, and under profession, she had said, I'm a capitalist. San Francisco actually has a Mary Ellen Pleasant Day. There is a Mary Ellen Pleasant Park where she is praised as the mother of civil rights in California. Sixty years after her death, her gravestone was amended with a line that she had asked for on her deathbed, and that was a friend of John Brown. I can't even... Talk about a life that should be a documentary. I can't even begin to imagine. Born a slave, ends up becoming a capitalist, investing, brilliant millionaires, funds John Brown. Wow. Okay, that was somebody I never heard of. Just passing it on. Have a great weekend, guys. Um, thank you. And uh, toodaloo. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers. <laughs>